Hi everyone, welcome back to another Energy Geoscience MRCI podcast. My name is Rochelle Kernan and Autumn Hagsma is also here and we have a very special guest, uh, Jessica Moore. Jessica, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, Rochelle. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you so much for being here. We really appreciate your time and energy and we're really excited to hear what you have to say. To start us off, can you tell us a, about a little bit more about yourself, like walk through your education and your career path? Sure, yeah. Um, so my name is Jessica Moore and I am the state geologist of West Virginia. Um, I'm the first uh, woman to be appointed mm -hmm. in this position and the first native West Virginian to hold the, the job since um, around World War II. So uh, 70 years uh, wow. since we've had a native. Mm -hmm. um, I am a native West Virginian. My children are 10th generation on one side of the family. So we've been in these hills for a very long time. And um, then another side of the family are relatively recent immigrants who, you know, I think we'll talk about a little bit later. But, uh, you know, life in West Virginia, no matter how long you've been here, is so intertwined with natural resources that sometimes we don't even notice, you know, the influence that they have on our life. And, and that was certainly true for me. And really, my energy perspective was developed from a young age. The, the farm that I grew up on had not only a water well to the house, but also had what is known as house gas. Mm -hmm. And so we had a, um, a gas well that was drilled um, in the early 1980s. And somehow my father managed to finagle a deal where they ran a line to our house. So we had free gas that was coming out of the, the Benson sandstone, you know, 4,000 feet beneath the surface. And then also, you know, clean, fresh water from a shallow aquifer. And to me, you know, that's, that's sustainable energy. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we lived off of that. And in fact, I, the house was so you know old and drafty. It was an old Victorian farmhouse that I don't think we could have lived in it if we didn't have you know those natural resources on hand. Um, but I didn't set out to become a geologist. Uh, earth science is not really a a large part of the curriculum in West Virginia K-12. At that point, there was only I think half a year in eighth grade was spent on earth science, mm -hmm. and so it wasn't until I. Um, got to West Virginia University as an undergraduate that I had my first geology class. And again, when we started to talk about streams, you know, it was really easy for me to visualize what a meandering stream looks like and how it cuts on a cut bank and deposits on a point bar, because I saw it, you know, I grew up on rivers and, and I understood those systems um, because I had observed them so many different times. So I really, you know, fell in love with geology, um, had a, a great program in the department there at West Virginia University. And then um, when I graduated, you know, like a lot of young people uh, in this state, I, I figured it was time to leave, you know, and, and pursue other opportunities elsewhere. And I ended up on the coast of North Carolina mm -hmm. at the University of North Carolina at Wilmington. And, um, the department there was staffed with a lot of old um, 
oil and gas workers who had left the industry you know, after the downturn in the 80s and ended up you know, at, at UNCW. And so I got a really comprehensive education in subsurface geology and began to work in a technique known as sequence stratigraphy. Mm-hmm. And, and what sequence stratigraphy does is, is genetically links different environments that are adjacent to one another and, and provides a system where we can predict how it changes based on changes in sea level. And you know anybody who works in it knows that it's it's one of those great unifying disciplines that brings in a lot of different pieces of earth science, and I it really resonated with me. But I didn't use it at first for any kind of petroleum exploration. Uh, the first research that I did was the late Crete, late Cretaceous um, ultra hot house environment, and how we had you know major fluctuations of sea level even though there were no glaciers. You know, so how does that happen? Mm-hmm. And uh, once I graduated, I was offered a job with the North Carolina Geological Survey working to map the Outer Banks, mm-hmm. which um, for anyone uh, who is familiar with the East Coast of the United States, uh, the Outer Banks are a string of barrier islands that are incredibly vulnerable to sea level rise. Mm-hmm. Um, and have been, you know, they're geologically ephemeral features that have changed significantly through time. And so again, we were able to use uh, sequence stratigraphic concepts along with uh, drill holes to put together a recent history of how those barrier islands had evolved and what we could do to one, educate the public on how they may change in the future and also, you know, how we develop policy to help preserve these environments. And this was a really interesting first lesson mm-hmm. in politics mm-hmm. because what our research showed was that when a major hurricane came in and opened up a new inlet, our first instinct, because our roads you know, are disturbed from this, is to fill in the void, build the road, make it all like it was. Mm-hmm. But what our research showed was that that inlet was necessary to get sediments onto the backside of the barrier island and once you built up just a few centimeters of sediment different vegetation populated mm-hmm. those sediments and anchored them and so it thereby grew the barrier island from that breach but even after we presented this scientific information to policymakers, um, it was not well received and in fact, um, many of the very distinguished researchers who sat on an advisory panel ended up quitting in disgust. Um, so that was, you know, uh, an education, a real life education, you know, of how your science, no matter how robust it is, you know, if it doesn't fit in with some larger plans of, of people with power and influence, you know, sometimes it, it falls on deaf ears. Yeah. Um, so at that point in time, um, I, was, I was homesick, uh, maybe if I, I didn't even realize it, um, and an opportunity came up for me to come back to WVU for a PhD. Mm-hmm. And it just so happened that that was at the beginning of the Marcellus Shale boom. Mm-hmm. And so I came in to the basin with subsurface geologic knowledge at a time when the heart of it was in my home county. And so it was incredibly gratifying to get to come back, you know, with this skill set that I had developed 
and and use it to benefit the state that I love. And so uh, it, I was into my studies uh, when this job at the survey came up. And so I started at the Geolo West Virginia Geological Survey in the oil and gas program. And uh, that is when I started on the Midwest Regional Carbon Sequestration Partnership you know, when I met Autumn. And so that has, as you know, you know, a longstanding research project. Uh, the West Virginia Survey has been involved now for 20 years. And so I was able to work on it you know, as a project scientist and now as the director, you know, kind of see where we plug in what we've learned to where we move forward you know, in the future. I was going to say my brain started lighting up when you're talking about sedimentology and sequence stratigraphy and the fact that you're the first woman in your position and all of that. So thank you so much. It's yeah, you have an amazing story. Yeah, well, I love my job. Yeah. Um, so lucky. Yeah. Yeah. So moving on, can you tell us specifically in your current role what work you do as a geologist at the West Virginia Geological Society? And then if you could sort of hone in on what work you're currently doing that's related to the energy transition. Well, you know, as, as director, unfortunately, you know, it's not all science. Um, mm -hmm. It's about a, a third science, a third administration, and a third politics and policy. And you're <laughs> never sure, you know, which hat you're going to wear at any one time. But, but the carbon storage work has been very interesting in how those three areas intersect. So as, uh, as a geologist, you know, I understood the, the subsurface systems, the reservoirs of interest, you know, where we might target a well. But then on the, the policy side, West Virginia has been um, very proactive, in my opinion, in instituting policy related to CCS. So we had a, a bill that was passed that was kind of a, an umbrella bill that um, looked at poor space ownership and right of access for seismic surveys and um, the funding of the, the office that will administer the program and you know just very comprehensive bill that, that really set the stage. And I was able to help educate and advise you know, on the, the details behind that, you know, what that means and then we were able to take that information and in this past legislative session we uh there was a bill that passed that gave the state the right to lease our poor space and again i was able to you know kind of educate and advise behind that and so now we're kind of at the nexus of a lot of the CCS work because we are giving technical information you know, to companies that are coming in. We're helping our regulators stand up their program. And then we're also helping to you know, craft the best policy for the state so we have a firm foundation moving forward. Great. The next question we have is, you know, how has environmental justice impacted your life and what role do you think it is going to play in the energy transition? This question came up after a presentation that I gave at the, the last MRCI meeting, which was held in Morgantown, West Virginia. Mm -hmm. And and I gave an update on policy and touched on you know, some of the bills that we just discussed. But as West Virginia is waiting on our 
determination from the Environmental Protection Agency on whether we will be granted class six primacy for underground injection control of CO2. We've had some, some public concern mm -hmm. that has come to light. And there was a letter sent to uh, the Environmental Protection Agency Region 3 Director that, that listed some of these concerns. And, and they ranged from you know, having the, the capacity and the funding to properly administer and regulate the program to concerns with you know, groundwater and that we don't know enough about you know, the injection. And then one concern was with environmental justice and how the environmental justice communities don't feel that they have enough of a voice in the class six process to the point where they would like to have authority to stop a project even though they state in the letter that they don't believe that the class six program offers any environmental benefits and so you know i am a member of the West Virginia community, you know, I've lived in a lot of different places around the state. I have family in different places around the state. So, you know, we're the people who are here. You know, I didn't parachute in from somewhere else. And, and I do understand our problems. And some of them I understand because I've lived them. And so there was a uh, an article published in the New York Review of Books in the spring and uh, it was authored by a man named Scott Stern. And the, the title is The Lost Promise of Environmental Rights. And it focuses on a town in North Central West Virginia by the name of Ann Moore. And Ann Moore is a one company town and that company is Union Carbide. And um, it was established in the uh, early part of the, the 20th century, late part of the 19th century. Carbide did not pay their share in municipal taxes. And so the the town of Anmore had a, a very large um, environmental burden that was placed on them. And in this article, you know, it says that by the late 1960s, the Chemical Corporation Union Carbide had taken over the plant and fly ash and particulate matter had settled on everything in town. Bits of debris, some of it as large as butterfly wings, gather in drifts on Anmore's dead lawns. The pollution laced with silica and lead killed plants, blackened houses, ate the paint off cars and infiltrated the lungs of the residents. The omnipresent sudden ash and smell, with distinct smell, decimated home values in Anmore, making it difficult for people to sell their houses and leave. Meanwhile, Union Carbide paid a pittance in taxes, trapping the municipal, municipal budget at just $19,000. Anmore's children trudged to school, a building that at the time had been condemned for almost 30 years, but was still in use along steep dirt roads, which during the wet months were an unholy slurry of mud and sewage. There were no parks, no playgrounds, no sewers, no health clinic. My mother grew up in Anmore. She was one of those school children. Mm -hmm. And and I can remember her telling me the stories of of living in Anmore and um, being called, so we didn't call it Union Carbide. It, it was always the carbon to us and to everyone who still lives in Anmore, um, you know, like Madonna or Beyonce, just, you know, one name. <laughs> and 
um, you know, she was called a carbon rat in yeah. school, you know, made fun of by the other kids. And, and so the citizens in the 1970s stood up and they were aided by Ralph Nader mm -hmm. and Nader's Raiders. He had uh, this, this small army of, of young attorneys who at the time were arguing in the courts that people had a right to clean water and clean air as enshrined in the Constitution. Uh, these lawsuits were, were unsuccessful and, and the, the technique pivoted to looking at you know, deficiencies in adhering to regulations as a way to force companies to adhere to environmental standards. But at that time, there was a large movement to you know get into the courts and enshrine these rights to clean air clean water and and that's what happened in anmore and um it was aided by the social media of its time which was a, a family that had a, a printing company mm -hmm. and so they printed a uh a, a zine uh, a magazine carbon copy where they would put open letters to union carbide or to the paper they would talk about what had happened you know, and this became really popular and people started consuming this information and educating themselves. And and Union Carbide did not like it. Um, my mother tells me stories of their phones being tapped and, um, you know, the citizens resorting to, I think they've all passed away, so I hope I can say this and nobody gets in trouble, um, federal crimes, including uh, mail fraud. So they would steal Carbide's mail from the post office. And it be, it was very contentious. Mm -hmm. And um, so what happened was that they did not win in court, mm -hmm. but they did install a mayor that was able to tax Carbide at a fair rate. And then at the same time, um, the Environmental Protection Agency was established and started putting in these rules that forced Carbide to clean up. So by the time I was a kid, you know, and I spent a lot of time in Anmore as a kid, I rode my bike on paved roads mm -hmm. and played in parks. And and while there was still that smell in the air, there was not the flakes of soot that would, you know, land on your white shirt and immediately blossom into a stain of, of iron and sulfur. Mm -hmm. um, so it was all those things combined, really, that that gave Anmore some modicum of environmental justice. And, you know, my grandmother had chronic health problems, um, passed away when I was pretty young, unsurprisingly. But if she knew what I was doing now with carbon storage, you know, that, that we're keeping that out of the air and, and storing it safely underground, you know, she would be proud of me. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so, you know, I think, you know, certainly, and we were talking about this, you know, before we all got on the podcast, you know, um, we want to be good stewards of the environment. You know, we're all here because we care. And when we hear that somebody might have some skepticism and concern, as scientists, we want to give them all the information. Look at what we've done. We have all of this. We've tried. We see this problem. We've tried to, you know, solve it as well. But, you know, maybe what we need to do is listen you know, and figure out where these communities have their concerns and where we can offer that information, but in the most constructive and, and in a two-way discussion manner as possible. Mm -hmm. Wonderfully said. Mm -hmm. 
thank you so much for sharing that deeply personal part of your life and your family's history. Well, you know, in West Virginia, uh, unfortunately, it's not uncommon. You know, this one was a little bit higher, you know, visibility because of the people who got involved. But there are many other towns who experienced this with less success. And, And that's, again, why we're here. We're trying to do better. So, Jessica, do you have any advice for students, young professionals, or even experienced, seasoned professionals that are interested in geoscience and the energy transition? When I'm asked this question, my first response is always to find your team, mm-hmm. you know, and, and we're, you know, I think this is proof positive. You know, Autumn and I have known each other for a long time. We've been on a team because of MRCI. Mm-hmm. You know, but part of her team is a podcaster who is living in Australia. Mm-hmm. You know, and you, you never know. You know where these different people with their different skill sets may fit into your research mm-hmm. as a scientist. And I think that's certainly true in the energy transition. You know, um, a lot of us subsurface geologists come out of the petroleum industry, um, but, you know, we have associations, you know, someone on my team uh, who is one of my most trusted colleagues, and I try to work with them whenever I can, is a calcareous nanofossil biostratigrapher, uh-huh. right? And we do, we work on completely different things. Our yeah. backgrounds are completely different, but we're on the same team, mm-hmm. and we, we lift each other up, we give each other information, we're the sounding board when we need it, and, and I think, you know, finding that team, curating that team, keeping that team is um, is great advice no matter where you are in your career. Mm-hmm. And I'm constantly looking to add members um, <laughs> because you learn, you know, yeah. that is how you learn best, I think. Mm-hmm. Thank you yeah. uh, for answering our questions and participating in the podcast today. Yeah. Well, you're very welcome. Thank yeah, you both no, for was, having me. It was wonderful. It was like so cool. You're definitely, um, you're the, I think the first one that we've had with an environmental justice story. So thank you. Thank you again for sharing that. Yeah. Well, thanks to the guy who wrote it in the New York Review of Books. I couldn't believe it when I, you know, Googled <laughs> and more environmental justice. You yeah. know, I was like, there it is. <laughs> awesome. Thank you. Take care. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks so much. Mm-hmm.